When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson. If there's a constant in the American campaign story, it's that the elites can't predict the future very well. News is, news is what surprises us, which is why the political press always has news. When <clears throat> voters are always undoing our certainties, we've been certain that Truman was a gone goose in 1948, but a B-list movie actor with relatively simple views would never get elected. And Donald Trump, there's no way he was going to win the Republican primary in 2016. In 1824, insiders were certain, they were certain that Andrew Johnson was not his name. That wasn't the candidate's name. They were certain of that. But what they were less certain about is whether Andrew Jackson was a serious contender for the presidency. He had a really thin political resume. And while he was a military hero with bullets still in his body and a roadmap of scars, the general was also a hothead. He was a frontier wild man, too ill-tempered for the job. Even he agreed, I can command a body of men in a rough way, he reportedly said in 1821, but I am not fit to be president. So in 1824, Jackson couldn't possibly have been a serious contender for the presidency. Plus, he was competing with a tough field. The campaign of 1824 was packed with veteran legislators and cabinet officials, secretaries of state and war and treasury, the farm team from which all presidents since Washington had been chosen. Of course, there weren't a lot of presidents since Washington, but anyway, that was the way things had been going. There had been nine elections, and that was a pattern about how things were Jackson was such a long shot, man in the know figured that he was actually just a stalking horse for the Federalists, which had died. The artful Federalists said one favor, knowing the general's popularity and as a patriotic warrior, have started his name for the presidency, the purpose of sowing dissensions in the Democratic Party. So he wasn't running for real. He was just running because the Federalists were making mischief. Other wise people thought that Jackson would split the vote with other candidates, and that would allow John Quincy Adams, the son of the former president, to step up from his post as Secretary of State, which had indeed been the anteroom to the presidency for Madison and Jefferson. There are men behind the curtain who are pushing Jackson, said the national advocate, perfectly aware that he cannot be elected and supposing that his strength will ultimately go for Adams. They were all wrong. Jackson was not a stalking horse for John Quincy Adams. He would become Adams's fiercest challenger, propelled by voters demanding a bigger role in picking their president. A new, new era had started, and that was one that the political class didn't quite know about. They'd been underestimating the force that always surprises us, which is the voters. The American system, which was supposed to operate as a republic run by the elites, was moving more towards a popular democracy where people would have their say. The elites were just slow to pick up on this. Jackson was not. He did so well in 1824, Jackson did, that by the end of the year, if there had been cable television pundits, they would have said it was certain that Jackson was going to win the presidency. When John Quincy Adams won instead, which we'll get to in a minute, Jackson's supporters cried, corrupt bargain. 
and another American electoral phenomenon was born, a revenge movement led by voters who felt robbed. The conclusion of the 1824 campaign was the spark for Jackson's 1828 campaign of vindication, which then, of course, led to two terms in office for him. But it it wasn't the pundits were totally wrong, because it was hard to see at the beginning of Jackson's campaign that he really had the fire in the belly. He didn't start by charging up the hill. In fact, he was basically put in by local Tennessee politicians who were trying to build support for their faction of the party, and they were convinced that by nominating Jackson for the White House— his military hero credentials would draw voters to their other preferred candidates. When we talk about people being at the top of the ticket, well, they actually had tickets back then. And on the top of the ticket was an image of Jackson. And then below it was all the other candidates. And so these Tennessee Democrat Republicans were hoping that by putting the famous guy at the top, people would just go ahead and vote for the rest of the slate of candidates. Jackson's friends, uh, Hugh Lawson White, was so skeptical of this whole process. He said that scoundrels were using Jackson's name, quote, to affect their dishonest or dishonorable purposes. They have no more notion of trying to make him president than of making me. If the hero of the Battle of New Orleans had any design of his own, it was to thwart a local rival who was running for the Senate. And we remember from previous episodes that any candidate who ran had to pretend that they weren't running at all. And so Jackson wrote, the office of the chief magistrate is one of great responsibility and it should not be sought. My political creed prompts me to leave the affair to the free will of those who have alone the right to decide. Candidates who wanted to be president had to pretend they didn't want to be president, which is why there was so much talk of intrigue in political conversations at the time. Here's another explanation of, of Jackson's code about running for the presidency. I have no doubt if I were to travel to Boston, where I've been invited, that it would ensure my election. But this I cannot do. I would feel degraded. The balance of my life, if I ever fill that office, it must be the free choice of the people. I can then say I am the president of the nation, and my acts shall comport with that character. So, it would be easy to mistake him as being ambivalent. Of course, it was also in keeping with the norms of the time that you had to look as though you were ambivalent and that people had to come select you. Candidates were not supposed to, quote, be out on an electioneering pilgrimage, as Jackson put it. Just to remind, the whole idea was that if you were out on an electioneering pilgrimage, it would cause you to make promises to people that you would then have to keep in office, and that would get in the way of your you're making decisions once in office based on your calm, cool reason. Jackson, of course, was the hero of the Battle of New Orleans. He was the first candidate or the first president to have his own nickname, Old Hickory, again, a name given to him by his troops, because he was as tough as Old Hickory on the battlefield. He was over six feet tall, and his eyes were said to resemble that of a chafed lion when excited. History remembers him, of course, with that shock of gray hair. He carried two bullets in his body and that rattled like a bag of marbles, they said, when he walked. His body was full of lead because he had been in uh, a few duels, and in the duels he'd gotten shot but had survived. But it also meant that he was the victim of, of hemorrhages often. So sometimes before he went to bed at night, he would have to bleed himself to cure himself of these hemorrhages. He did not have to battle the wimp factor, Mr. Jackson. In 1816, he fought the Seminole Indians, and before he, and the year before, he had beaten the British at the Battle of New Orleans. 
the Battle of New Orleans, you know, is the stuff of, of myth. There were 300 British soldiers killed and another 1,200 were wounded and only 13 of Jackson's troops died and only 59 were wounded. Six years later, they were still throwing flowers at Jackson on the streets of New Orleans. Here's a letter from his wife, Rachel. The attention and honors paid to the general far excel a recital by my pen, she wrote. They conducted him to the Grand Theater. This is a, a visit they had to New Orleans. They conducted him to the Grand Theater. The box was decorated with elegant hangings. At his appearance, the theater rang with loud acclamation. Vive Jackson! Songs of praise were sung by ladies, and in the midst of all of this business, they crowned him with a laurel. In Tennessee, where he had been nominated to be president, though again, everybody didn't think it was serious, among the people... One Tennessee newspaper noted his popularity is unbounded. Old and young speak of him with rapture. By the end of 1823, this is what led the state legislature to appoint him to the Senate. So if he was headed to the White House in 1824, he's going to have to stop by the Senate first. It was a good year to be a military hero because the Marquis de Lafayette returned to the United States for a 13-month tour of parties and celebrations. When his ship docked in the New York Harbor, 50,000 people turned out to welcome him. Women wore gloves that were printed with Lafayette's likeness, and when he greeted one of them, he didn't kiss her gloved hand, saying that he didn't wish to kiss himself. A Connecticut newspaper wrote that Lafayette's pilgrimage kindled in Americans a delirium of feeling, a tumult of the soul from which one never wished to be awakened to the dull, sober realities of common life. The aging general marveled at all that had changed since he routed the Redcoats. The country had grown to 10 million from 2.5 million during the colonial days. 13 colonies had grown into 24 states, including Ohio, Florida, and Missouri. The Republic had survived the first test to its system. Remember the election of 1800? It had been bumpy, 36 ballots in the House, but it was a calm transfer of power, even though there had been a raging fight between the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. The partisan rancor of the early republic had, had kind of faded away after the War of 1812. The Federalists had sort of totally disappeared. And America had entered the era of good feeling. James Monroe had been elected essentially unopposed. Lafayette marveled at the immense improvements since his time in America in, those, in its younger days. Westward expansion had brought about speculation, however. So all of these improvements had an economic downside. Banks had issued paper money that, as a part of that speculation and that be essentially became meaningless money. And in 1819, there was a panic that crippled the nation's economy. Another part of westward expansion that was testing the new nation was the Missouri Compromise. Northerners condemned it. They condemned Congress for allowing that. And then in the South, they recoiled at the idea that Congress would have any say or take it upon itself to have any say in the regulation of slavery anywhere. But the reason we're going into all of this about Lafayette is that he rekindled in Americans a, a, a reappreciation of the heroism of the, of the revolutionary age. And he created a kind of national celebration of the attributes, one of my favorite topics, attributes of bravery and character. So you have the nation moving west, challenges to the nation, and, and somebody returns to kind of remind everybody of those verities of the early American Republic. And this was important because the revolutionary generation was dying off. And so it was a new crop of leaders and people 
felt a disconnect between the country moving west and that and that original founding part of the country. So Jackson, who had been in the Revolutionary War as a as a young scout, played on those desires. His biographer, John Eaton, wrote a, a series of letters about the founding fathers called Letters of Wyoming. And there were 11 of them, and the, the author's name was Wyoming, though it was written by John Eaton. And the letters essentially railed against the political era of intrigue that America was in and the misrule. And it promoted Jackson as a bridge from the virtuous age that Lafayette was a representative of and that everybody was celebrating in that 13-month tour, a bridge between that era and the present era. Jackson didn't write any of the letters of Wyoming, but he played a central role in their publication. Wyoming wrote that the era of good feeling had lulled the country into a trance and that one-party control of government was a bad thing. It had bred corruption and manipulation. Now, think of it. Washington had left office railing against parties. Jackson now, or John Eaton writing as Wyoming, was saying that one-party control was a disaster because power passed so easily between members of the same clan, There was it was all rigged, which is something we hear about, of course, today. Look to the city of Washington, wrote Wyoming, and let the virtuous patriots of the country weep at the spectacle. There, corruption is springing into existence and fast flourishing. In previous elections, voters could trust that the founders were there to protect their liberties against despotism. But since then, the founders had been replaced by regular old politicians, men who were skilled at managing power, keeping office through patronage and cozy arrangements. It was the time for the people now to intercede and give power to someone who was not tainted by the political process. Got that? Got that? So you have a rigged system, which is providing predictable, unsatisfactory results in the shadow of an economic disaster in which the solution seems to be the arrival of a non-politician into the mix. Jackson's critics saw his lack of political polish as a flaw, but he was pitching it as a virtue. Only someone from outside the political world could clean out the stable. Today, obviously, this is the classic outsider's gambit, but it was a total real risk at the time from what was comfortable and expected. But the appetite, again, for this outsider was not just that they were disappointed with the elites, but nobody was very fond of, of elites because bankers in the East Coast and the well-connected politicians and what Jackson called the moneyed aristocracy had caused the recession by supporting the Second Bank of the United States. It wasn't an abstract notion of representation that people were angry about. It was that the elites had made economic decisions that led directly to the suffering in the rest of the country as a part of the Panic of 1819. Jackson was just the right leader, wrote Eaton, because, quote, he is the last of those valiant establishers of the liberty of our republic who can succeed to the highest office known to our Constitution. Like the immortal Washington, Jackson was a revolutionary tested fellow, and he could take on, quote, the dangerous trends of the modern age and restore, quote, the cherished values of old. He was going to make America great again. Today, of course, we're familiar with candidates who present themselves as the people's champion. The founders had tried, in fact, to create a system that was resistant to these men. The Electoral College, uh, the election of senators by state legislature, limited suffrage, nominating caucus were all designed to take the car keys from the inebriated public because nobody wanted to sit around in the rubble of the country and think, oh, well, you know, it seemed a good thing at the time. So the entire system 
of early American democracy was set up to warn against demagogues. This isn't just an American thing. Plato quotes Socrates as saying, tyranny is probably established out of no other regime than democracy. The danger of making one man the route to the protection of liberty, as the letters of Wyoming suggested, right, because they suggested Jackson was the only way to get back to those eternal verities of the of the revolutionary era. The danger, of course, was that that invites personal hero worship. People would be tempted to hand over the country and too much power to a single person based on affection, uh, sort of movie star good looks on uh, over enthusiasm about their valor in war, all of which invested in a single person more power than the original founding of the government ever wanted to allow. And then once a person was elevated to that post, they'd be driven more by human pride, uh, particularly if that person was a military man, worried Jackson's critic at the time. Dazzled by military glory, wrote Albert Gallatin, who was a running mate of Jackson's rival, William Crawford. The people give up their rights and liberties to the shrine of that glory. Thomas Jefferson had worried about this, of course, and he specifically worried about it with respect to Jackson. Here's what he said to Daniel Webster. I feel much alarmed at the prospect of seeing General Jackson president. He is one of the most unfit men I know of for such a place. He has had very little respect for laws and constitutions and is, in fact, an able military chief. His passions are terrible. When I was president of the United States, he was a senator and he could never speak on account of the rashness of his feelings. I have seen him attempt it repeatedly and as often choke with rage. His passions are no doubt cooler now. He has been much tried since I knew him, but he is a dangerous man. Jackson reveled in the criticism. In a letter of March 6, he wrote to his nephew and he said, the abuse in the papers, quote, will increase my standing with the nation more than any other course they can pursue. They will elect me contrary to their wishes by their abuse. I do assure you, my young friend, that I would rather be abused by these hireling writers than receive their praise. For the praise of such men would be viewed by all honest, disinterested men as a cause to suspect my honesty and integrity. Jackson's critics had plenty of reason to think that he might overreach. As a military leader, he'd basically executed mutineers. He'd broken the treaties, uh, the conditions of treaties with the Indians in New Orleans. He, he basically imposed martial law on the city, defying a writ of habeas corpus and jailing the federal district judge who issued it. While pursuing the Seminole Indians, he overstepped his authority and he executed two British soldiers, creating a, an international incident. His entire career seemed to contradict the most basic democratic processes for which this country stood writes Jackson scholar Robert Rimini. Jackson's campaign rivals in 1824, House Speaker Henry Clay and Treasury Secretary William Crawford, were more than just critics in this campaign. They had actually pushed official inquiries into Jackson's treatment of the Spanish as governor of Florida. Clay had denounced him for two hours on the floor of the House, comparing him with military tyrants like Alexander, Caesar, and Napoleon. Several years later, as a candidate, when Clay was actually competing with Jackson, he told a friend, I cannot believe that killing 2,500 Englishmen at New Orleans qualifies for the various difficult and complicated duties of the chief magistracy. 
The Raleigh Register and North Carolina State Gazette summed up Jackson's career this way. They said his career was a disgusting detail of squabbling and quarreling, of pistolings, drinkings, and brick battings, and other actions reconcilable neither to regulations nor morals. The National Advocate said, As to General Jackson, his temper and talents are by no means suited to the office. There would be no safety under his administration. Jackson had plenty of supporters, however. Uh, The savage treatment of the Indians, which now threatens to get him off the $20 bill, was not seen as as much of a liability at the time. Stephen Douglas said later, uh, I wish to God we had an old hickory now alive in order that he might hang northern and southern traders on the same gallows. When Stephen Douglas said that, the applause was reported to have been loud and sustained in one newspaper account. And Lincoln, when he suspended habeas corpus during the Civil War, pointed to Jackson's having done so in the Battle of New Orleans. Jackson at the time was, of course, well aware of his reputation. And so when he first came to Washington as a senator, radicals tried to bait him. As as he wrote in a letter, it bait him into some act of violence to destroy his candidacy. But in this, they have much mistaken my character, Jackson said, and he delighted in surprising Washington hostesses when he arrived at their parties. When it becomes necessary to philosophize and be meek, he wrote, no man can command his temper better than I. Sounds like Donald Trump when he says that no one can be more presidential than he. And Jackson wrote home and was pleased by the shocked reception he got when he behaved like an actual human being. I am told the opinion of those whose minds were prepared to see me with a tomahawk in one hand and a scalping knife in the other has greatly changed, and I am getting along very smoothly. Readers of the National Advocate on April 10, 1824, would have come across an imagined conversation between a carpenter and a mason. I am almost tired of reading every day about the next president, says the carpenter, testifying that campaign fatigue didn't just start with cable news. Is it much of a consequence who we elect? The Mason responds, Certainly it is. Every true American should feel deep interest in the choice of chief magistrate of the country because he is the man selected to see the laws faithfully executed. And upon a judicious choice depends our safety at home and our respect abroad. The carpenter wonders if it's possible, quote, with all the checks imposed by our constitution and laws and those greater checks of public opinion that the president can do any injury to the country. Of course it's possible, responded the Mason, who illustrated for his friend the ways a president could abuse the country. He could, quote, elevate to power men of suspicious and doubtful character. He may fill the high places with persons more devoted to his private views than the public good. In short, the office is a dangerous one in the hands of bad men. The message of this dialogue was that if every person was not vigorous, the politicians would hoodwink them, serving themselves and their friends. The Mason in this dialogue was no doubt thinking about February's attempted hoodwinking in the Democratic Nominating Caucus. What was that? The Democratic Nominating Caucus was called King Caucus. What happened in the King Caucus was elected officials of the party from across a broad geographical region who had debated each other, understood what the job required, would get together, and they would pick who the nominee of the party was going to be. That was the method used, the Democratic Republicans used, to pick uh, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, the previous three presidents. But the caucus where representatives in Washington did the picking of the party nominee was falling out of favor because state politicians and voters didn't want to have their choice handled, basically handed over to them by Washington politicians. They They wanted a greater say in the party's nominating process. And they wanted that say either through state 
the votes of the state legislatures or nominating conventions. And remember, again, this is a time in which people in the states were irritated by the economic decisions being made by elites in Washington. The election was particularly important because there was no opposition to the Democratic-Republicans. So in the caucus, the small number of men who would pick the nominee for the Democratic-Republicans would essentially be picking the, nom- the president of the United States because there was no other party to challenge. This is a great national crisis, wrote the Louisville Public Advertiser, involving the question whether the people are sovereign in elections or whether their servants shall rule them. Their servants being the members of Congress who were making the decision, but because they were making the decision with no input of the people, or so thought the Louisville Public Advertiser, they were essentially ruling the people without giving the people any say. Jackson wrote to his friend John Coffey, I intermix with none of those who are engaged in the intrigues of caucus or president-making. He wasn't going to bother with King Caucus, but he didn't have to because all of his friends were trying to undo King Caucus too, and so was Secretary of State John Quincy Adams and House Speaker Henry Clay. They were all trying to destroy King Caucus. Why? (laughs) Because William Crawford, the uh, Treasury Secretary, had a lock. He was the front runner, and he, which, of course, by the way, the fact that he was the front runner in the caucus, which is the front runner of the insiders in Washington, was the result of the fact that he hadn't challenged Monroe in 1816 with the implicit understanding that when it became his turn, he would get the nod, which, of course, underlined or underscored or supported or any other phraseology you want to use the claim against King Caucus, that it was essentially all rigged. This was a man figuring it out. Okay, Monroe, you go first, then Crawford, you go next, uh, and so forth. It is said there is to be a caucus. This I cannot believe, wrote Jackson, but it is the last hope of the friends of Mr. Crawford. Such is the feeling of the nation that a recommendation by a congressional caucus would politically damn any name put forward by it. The caucus managers, led by future President Martin Van Buren, were pushing Crawford even though Crawford was suffering or recovering from a stroke five months earlier that had left him nearly blind and feeble. This, of course, again, underlined Jackson's point that the managers were so desperate to keep power, they would push somebody forward who was not physically fit for the job. They wanted just a warm body in the post to be the agent of whatever their their aims were. Van Buren, for his part, needed the caucus process to continue because it was the only way, the only way to keep party discipline. If you were someday going to be beholden to the views of your insider pals in Congress who represented the the nominating caucus, then you would stay in line. You wouldn't buck them because you knew someday if you wanted to be president or wanted to rise that you would need uh, the nominating caucus on your side. State legislatures across from across the country passed measures calling to get rid of this caucus because the state legislatures wanted to do the picking. Just before the vote, the Washington National Intelligentsia printed a notice signed by 11 congressmen calling on their colleagues to join with them to recommend a presidential candidate to the people. However, the same issue of the paper also carried an announcement by 24 members of Congress representing 15 states opposing the choosing of a presidential candidate to the people. The caucus went ahead anyway. Only 68 members showed up. 193 were absent. 48 were from four states. New York, you may remember, that's Van Buren's state, Georgia, North Carolina, and Virginia. When the balloting was over and the results were announced, guess who won? Guess who won by a huge margin? Crawford. And when, when the actual vote was taken, it was taken in the House and the, and, the, and the galleries were packed. And when the vote came in, there was a huge groan from the onlookers. Everything is carried by intrigue and management, Jackson wrote to his friend Coffee. 
It is now a contest between a few demagogues and the people, and it is to be seen whether a minority less than one-fourth of the whole members of Congress can coerce the people to follow them, or whether the people will assume their constitutional right and put down these demagogues. The crowd watching the caucus vote might not have been pleased, but plenty of people thought the system had worked. The system was designed to allow men who understood the attributes required for the presidency to pick someone who had those attributes. It's not crazy. And the other reason that caucus supporters wanted this to go forward is they thought that Jackson, Adams, and Clay wanted a messy national vote instead of a reasoned pick of members of Congress because they wanted to split the vote and have no electoral majority. And that would throw the election into the House where they could influence the final outcome. Defending the caucus process was one of my favorite descriptions of the silent majority. Here is something from the Raleigh Register and the North Carolina State Gazette. One of the great arguments for the silent majority in political history, defending the caucus that had picked Crawford, because even though they were groaning in the galleries, said the Raleigh uh, Register and North Carolina State Gazette, there was really a, there was really a national uh, support for the caucus, but it, you just weren't hearing those voices. And here's what the paper wrote. Because half a dozen grasshoppers under a hedge make the field ring with their importunate chink, Whilst the great cattle repose beneath the shade, chew the cud, and are silent, pray do not imagine that those who make the noise are the only inhabitants of the field. Let us not, brother editors, fancy that those who make the most noise are the only people interested in the great national questions now pending. No, many of the wisest and most intelligent men of our country are chewing the cud in silence, anxiously awaiting the result. After the caucus vote, the nominee of the Democratic-Republican Party was Crawford, but the outcome was essentially meaningless because the states still wanted to vote on their electors, and they weren't going to just take the suggestion of the Washington caucus, although they had in the past. Crawford still faced opposition from Jackson and John Calhoun, who we haven't talked about, the Secretary of War, who was also running. Henry Clay also and John Adams were on the ballot. So the states weren't going to automatically ratify the caucus's selection because there were so many good fellows running. And, as Jackson has had predicted, the railroading of the process undermined it. The clearly sort of rigged outcome made all the states want to do it their own way. And this is a huge shift in 1824. This would, in fact, be the last time the party would choose its nominee through King Caucus. King Caucus was dead, although we didn't, they didn't fully know it at the time. Not long after Crawford's victory in King Caucus, Jackson notched a victory in the Pennsylvania contest. And this would be a crucial turning point in the new order of things. It would be the second big shift, the first being the corruption of King Caucus. The second now is is Old Hickory's uh, victory in Harrisburg. The reason Pennsylvania mattered for Jackson is he had to prove that he had support outside of the West and the South. It does not appear that his qualifications for presidency are sufficiently obvious to induce any state, with the exception of Tennessee and perhaps Alabama, to give him the vote, wrote another one of those shortly-to-be-proven-wrong pundits in the um, Supporter and Scioto Gazette from Chillicothe, Ohio. All of the candidates had regional strength, and given the fact that their regional strength kind of, um, you know, John Quincy Adams was going to win New York, So Pennsylvania, though, was kind of up for grabs. And so it essentially made it a swing state, except Pennsylvania, the second largest state in the union at the time behind New York, wasn't really up for grabs. Jackson had what other candidates lacked for two years. His supporters, including men who had served 
under him in battle, had organized and worked the state. And he had the early support of the editor of the Columbian Observer, who had, who had fought in the Battle of New Orleans with him, and who was also, like Jackson, a huge critic of the banks. So he really had a two-year kind of secret effort that went with his consent, but not his direction. It was all run by his friends. In the end, he won the Harrisburg State Convention 124 to 1. And though it was the result of a careful behind-the-scenes plan, it was still framed as a grassroots groundswell, a cause where every tongue is eloquent in its favor by both supporters and opponents, as one newspaper put it. The public sentiment towards General Jackson is, in fact, a spontaneous emotion among the people wrote the Aurora General Advertiser, as he has outstripped all his competitors in Pennsylvania. Without the assistance of public journals, we may pronounce him as being, in the most extensive sense of the term, the people's candidate. So here, Jackson's allies were turning his two-year effort in Pennsylvania into the sign that this he was really the people's tribune. One Pennsylvania supporter claimed that Jackson was on his way to clean out the giant Augean stable at Washington. Hercules had been tasked to clean out the, in a single day the stables of King uh, Aegeus, who owned more cattle and horses than anyone in Greece. So that's where that phrase came from. And in 1828, when Jackson ran, the, there was a picture of a broom uh, and under it the slogan to sweep out the Aegean stable. So that idea of sweeping out corruption in Washington, remember in the Wyoming letters, uh, this idea that corruption and um, insider dealing as a result of the era of new uh, era of good feeling when there was just one party had to be cleaned out, uh, and it was Jackson who would do it. Jackson's victory in Pennsylvania surprised old Secretary of War John Calhoun, who uh, was basically knocked from the race. Calhoun's supporters complained that grog shop politicians of the villages and the rabble of Pittsburgh and Philadelphia had elected Jackson. Newspapers who were critical of Jackson were in fits. That the less thinking part of the community would be captivated by the pomp of military fame is not to be wondered at, said the Raleigh Register and North Carolina Star-Gazette, but that the state of Pennsylvania should not have made the proper distinction between the qualifications of a soldier and a statesman is extraordinary. With so many candidates running, nobody won the election of 1824, and nobody won a majority of the Electoral College. And so the 12th Amendment ratified after the deadlock uh, in 1800 between Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr, which you'll remember from our previous Whistle stop dictated that an election with no majority of electoral votes should be decided in the House of Representatives. It was the same as in 1800, that, that the House would determine who the victor would be when there was no majority. So that meant it, it became uh, a battle from state legislatures back to a battle about insiders. And candidates could promise now patronage. You elect me, and I'll help you out in Tennessee or Alabama or whatever district you represent in the House. So it became a, a lots and lots of worry about members of the House being bribed by one of these candidates. The people have two great dangers to guard against, wrote the Louisville Public Advertiser. First, the influence of King Caucus. Second, the failure of electors to choose a president and of the election thus devolving on Congress. So this is what had long worried people who thought that Adams and Clay and Jackson in fighting the caucus, this is what they thought they were up to. They were going to throw it into the House and then it would be just merely a vote buying scheme. Candidates have been encouraged to run who have no hopes of success, wrote the National Advocate, merely merely to bring the election into the House of Representatives. And they are thus encouraged by men from whom the nation has a right to look for better things. So it goes to the House and it's 
seen as as being uh, basically the end of a scheme. Jackson was the leader in the Electoral College. Uh, out of the hundred, but but out of the 131 electors required, he was short by 32. And in the total vote count, according to the newspapers, Jackson outpolled Adams 152,000 votes to 114,000 votes. And newspapers published all the tally sheets, and so that people could see the numbers in black and white. And the and the Jackson people said we got more electoral votes and more actual votes. So of course he's the rightful president, even though he didn't get the majority required by the Constitution. And here's how one pro-Jackson paper wrote about it. A decided answer ought, one would suppose, to be settled by ascertaining for whom the people have shown a decided preference. Let facts speak in place of arguments or assertions. From the foregoing table, it appears that Mr. Jackson has received nearly double the number of votes from the people received by Mr. Adams. So you didn't have to operate a pro-Jackson calculator to see that he had more electoral votes and popular votes. But historian Donald Radcliffe has made a really persuasive argument about how those numbers were skewed. Adams had won a number of his electors through state legislative votes. So people didn't vote directly. They voted for their legislators, not directly for the candidates. But when they voted for their legislators, they did so with the clear understanding that those legislators would vote for certain presidential candidates. And then based on the vote of the, for those presidential candidates, the electors would be assigned. So New York was such a state, and it was the largest state with one-seventh of the total population. And it was a totally Adams state. Jackson was a total non-story there. So if you look at the legislative vote in New York, which was intended to support Adams and allocated those people who had voted for their state legislators, but allocated those people to the total popular vote, then Adams would have come out ahead. So that total popular vote, which in the papers at the time was 152,000 to 114,000, if you added in the New York votes, which had not been counted because they were for state legislators and not in the total popular vote, then Adams would have been the winner. But that wasn't the way it was seen at the time. At the time, it was seen essentially that Adams had come in behind Jackson. The 12th Amendment dictated that only the top three finishers in the electoral votes would move to the next round, which eliminated Henry Clay. So now Henry Clay, who was fourth in the balloting, became a very popular fellow indeed. He was also Speaker of the House, which gave him a lot of, a lot of leverage over the proceedings. And he had specific leverage over the states of Kentucky, Ohio, and Missouri, all of which had voted for him. So Adams, Jackson, and Crawford, the remaining three that were left over, called on Clay regularly to induce him to support their man. I sometimes wish it was in my power to accommodate each of them, said Clay. He was able to see the lighter side of his burden. They all, everybody still went out to parties because this was taking some time and you couldn't just stop the social season. And one, one party, Adams and Jackson sat next to each other, separated only by an empty chair. Clay moved across the room and sat between them and said, well, gentlemen, since you are both so near the chair, but neither can occupy it, I will step in between you and take it myself. Everyone in the room apparently laughed. The two men, Adams and uh, Jackson, did not. In advance of the big vote in the House, the conversations, of course, in Washington were full of intrigue. There was talk of vote buying going on, and conjecturers wander about like the birds from the ark, finding as little rest for the soles of their feet and catching at every straw and green leaf that floats on the tide of rumor, wrote an apparently inebriated correspondent for the Providence Patriot. Rumors got so out of hand, it was reported that whiskey boys supporting Jackson would come down and attack Washington if Jackson didn't win. In his private letters, Jackson tried to maintain that virtue we heard from the beginning. I envy not the man who may climb into the presidential chair in any other way 
but by the free suffrage of the people, the great whore of Babylon being prostrated by the fall of the caucus, the liberty of our country is safe and will be perpetuated, and I have the proud consolation to believe that my name aided in its downfall. So Jackson, in his private letters, was already claiming credit for having helped kill the caucus, and that that was already a huge step in making sure that the people had some role in the election of their president. Had it been known at the time that Clay, who wasn't in the running anymore, and Adams had met on the evening of January 9th, you probably would have had a national incident. Clay had already told a friend in December that he was going to vote for Adams. But the fact that they met before Clay had publicly announced who he was supporting would have been a a sign of great intrigue. But the two basically agreed on national priorities, and they both hated Jackson. And so it was kind of not that surprising that Clay would ultimately go to support Jackson. Jackson refused to be a part of any of these behind-the-scenes games, and he couldn't have been even if he wanted to, because when one night when he was coming home late, he fell and tore his injured shoulder, which caused another one of those incapacitating hemorrhages that he used to sometimes voluntarily induce in himself, um, and so he was laid out for a while. Clay uh, arranged for his home state, Kentucky, to vote for Adams, even though Adams had not won the popular vote in Kentucky, and even though his state legislature, Clay's state legislature in Kentucky, had, in, had instructed its Congress not to vote for Adams, but to vote for Jackson. And it was the norm for members to follow the instruction of their state legislature. So this was a big deal. On the same day that Clay said Kentucky should go for Adams, the Ohio delegation also announced that they'd support Adams. So clearly Clay had strong influence, and that move helped Adams basically to win in the House Uh, Adams won 87 votes to Jackson's 71. So this was a huge surprise because the the newspapers had written that when Congress first assembled, wrote the Louisville Public Advertiser, fresh from the people, there was a universal impression that General Jackson would certainly be elected. He was decidedly the strongest with the people of the whole union. And if the question could have been decided by them, there was not the slightest doubt that he would have been chosen. So the them in that case is the people. The union between Clay and Adams was immediately denounced. The West, which Clay represented, didn't want John Quincy Adams. It had voted unanimously for, or at least in the other states other than Kentucky, for Jackson. And Clay's move confirmed everybody's views about intrigue. Mr. Clay has sold himself and the West to Mr. Adams for a place in the cabinet or for the promise of a foreign mission, wrote one paper. Outwardly, Jackson maintained decorum. Inwardly, he seethed. So you see, he wrote to a friend, the Judas of the West has closed the contract and will receive the 30 pieces of silver. His end will be the same. Jackson proclaimed that, quote, the rights of the people have been bartered for promises of office. One Jacksonian newspaper cited, uh, wrote about it this way, expired at Washington on the 9th of February of poison administered by the assassin hands of John Quincy Adam, the usurper, and Henry Clay, the virtue, liberty, and independence of the United States. Clay's defenders explained that he'd saved the country from itself. Shall we prefer a man whose sphere in life has, in some respects, been foreign to the office in question, to the one who has become almost identified with and part of that sphere? asked the Daily National Journal. If Mr. Clay has given his influence to Mr. Adams, it must be apparent to the world that he has been influenced by a deep sense of what he owes his country. Here's how Clay responded in the papers to the charges of a corrupt bargain, a bargain that he had given Adams his support in promise of some future office. 
I have interrogated my conscience as to what I ought to do, and that faithful guide tells me I ought to vote for Mr. Adams. I shall fulfill its injunction. Mr. Crawford's state of health and the circumstances under which he presents himself to the House appear to me to be a conclusive against him. As a friend of liberty and to the permanence of our institutions, I cannot consent in this early stage of their existence by contributing to the election of a military chieftain, Jackson, to give the strongest guarantee that this republic will march in the fatal road which has conducted every other republic to ruin. The idea that there was a corrupt bargain between Adams and Clay, where Adams offered Clay the post of Secretary of State in return for his support in the election of the House, was never proved. Clay was a named Secretary of State, and he was, but he was a perfectly reasonable person to name to be Secretary of State. He had the experience for the job that he was given, and he was an enemy of Jackson, so he was never going to support, actually, support Jackson. Still, it couldn't have been scripted better to give a suspicious public the proof they thought they needed that there had been a corrupt bargain for Clay to throw his support behind Adams and then for Adams to make him Secretary of State. Philadelphia merchant John Pemberton wrote to Jackson shortly after the vote, The pride of Kentucky, that means Henry Clay, like Lucifer has fallen and still hopes to involve you in the vortex of his ruin. He never can forgive you for the noble services you have done our country, nor for being in the way of his towering ambition. You will pardon my telling you we all feel an honest pride in your dignified conduct during the late contest for the presidency and your subsequent magnanimity has exhorted praise even from those who would have sacrificed you to promote their unhallowed ends. So powerful is the upright man that the most depraved must make obeisance to him. Jackson resigned the Senate and returned to Tennessee after the loss, the western frontier that where he had flourished, untrammeled by the corruption of the East, but it wasn't really a retreat. It was the start of a new campaign, a campaign for vindication. In October of 1825, the same month he resigned from the Senate, the Tennessee legislature unanimously nominated Jackson to be president in 1828, the earliest such a nomination uh, by far of any pre previous presidential election. The battle for the presidency of 1828 started almost as quickly as the one in 1824 had come to a conclusion. And Jackson's future victory and two-term presidency would be born out of his defeat. Our producer for today's episode is Jocelyn Frank. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. Whistlestop is a part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistlestop Crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who has no bullets rattling around in his body. For Whistle Stop, I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation.